listening to a bonus episode of the Futures Podcast. I'm currently hosting a monthly discussion on artificial intelligence over at SingularityNet's YouTube channel as part of their decentralized OS web series. For those of you who don't know, SingularityNet is a decentralized marketplace for artificial intelligence. On this month's episode of the series called Decentralized Future, I moderated a debate between Professor Frank Pasquale and Professor Steve Fuller on how best to regulate artificial intelligence. You can watch a full video version of this debate on SingularityNet's YouTube channel or at futurespodcast.net. Now, with massive investments behind artificial intelligence technologies, the question becomes, what is the appropriate way we should safeguard AI's development? After all, AI promises to be massively disruptive to a number of industries, including healthcare, education, finance, and media. The resulting hype meaning that these innovations are often met with a mixture of anxiety and excitement. Many have called for the urgent need for AI governance, whilst high-tech advocates and cyber libertarians argue that there is never a good time to regulate AI. Instead, robots should be given the freedom to think by accessing all of the data they want. Ultimately, there are both dangers and opportunities that can be found in taking either position. Today, we're joined by Professor Frank Pasquale and Professor Steve Fuller to debate the following premise. Humans should govern the technologies of automation, such as AI and robotics, rather than be captured or transformed by them. Frank Pasquale is a professor at the Brooklyn School of Law and the author of the recent book New Laws of Robotics. He will be arguing for a precautionary approach to the development of AI, one that favours a careful deployment of new laws for their usage. Steve Fuller is a professor of sociology at the University of Warwick and most recently the author of Nietzschean Meditations, Untimely Thoughts at the Dawn of the Transhuman Era. He will be arguing for a more proactionary approach to technological innovation, one that allows AI to be developed unencumbered by the sorts of governance that might limit its scope. Now, before I kick off, I should probably state that the opinions expressed in this debate don't necessarily represent those of Singularity Net. So now that I've made that clear, speaking for the motion, Frank Pasquale, why do you feel that humans should govern the technologies of automation, such as AI and robotics, rather than be captured or transformed by them? Well, thanks so much, Luke, and thanks so much for all of your work in um, bringing uh, very interesting ideas about the future to a wide audience. And um, it's a real uh, uh, honor and pleasure to be uh, in uh, dialogue and debate with with uh, Steve Fuller tonight. And I think that you know, in terms of my overall uh, perspective here, uh, what I'm trying to advance uh, both in the book New Laws of Robotics, but but really in like what's been so far like about a 20 year uh, academic career as a as a technology and law uh, commentator and analyst is the idea that there are lots of ways in which our technologies of AI and robotics can develop. You know, we can invest a ton of money, for example, in trying to make uh, a humanoid robot that is uh, just like a person or indistinguishable from a person. Um, Or we could, say, uh, divert that investment toward something more like an intelligence augmentation strategy, you know, from AI to uh, IA. And I think in many areas, it would be wise to do that. It would be wise to reward uh, robotics and automation that complements certain workers rather than replaces them. 
the rough and ready line that I draw in my book is uh, for professionals. And so I think that there's lots of professional labor that it would be very unwise to entirely replace with robotics and AI, but it would be much better to uh, augment or complement the current professionals in those roles, um, ranging in areas from uh, medicine to journalism to uh, 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 education and military and other applications that we can get into the more specifics. And I think the key uh, issue here and the key uh, thing that I'm trying to develop uh, in terms of this uh, view as to law and automation and law and AI and robotics is that there are some essential human values that really we need to preserve and some essential human roles that we need to preserve. Um, that's one level. And then the second level that I think is less metaphysical is, is it comes uh, from a perspective that is uh, more in the lines of political economy is that it's better to have a democratized expertise, democratized among persons, rather than relying on what is an increasingly uh, concentrated technology sphere where it's only a, a few major companies that really have the types of – and a few different alliances that really have the type of data and technological expertise to be able to um, uh, really be on the front the frontiers of uh, the new modes of production in AI and robotics. So those are my main ideas behind saying that we uh, can and should uh, really be shaping these technologies rather than being captured and shaped by them. And I look forward to being in further uh, dialogue on, on that proposition uh, and uh, its implications. So thanks. Now, Steve, I'd, I'd like to, you to uh, hold your responses to Frank for just a second and, and share with us the arguments against this motion. Okay. Uh, first of all, I think the, the motion, in a way, uh, presumes a false dichotomy, a sort of them versus us business between humans and AI. So that's the first thing, in a sense, to, to challenge. Um, and, uh, and I think the way we see this, and, and, and those of you who, who, who ha haven't uh, read Frank's book yet, you should read Frank's book. But one of the, one of the terms that's absent from the book is cyborg. And so there is this kind of in-between state that is emerging already, uh, has been emerging uh, through, uh, and I think this may have a little bit to do with what Frank is talking about as intellectual augmentation, uh, but the idea that uh, we, to, to a large extent, we have already begun to incorporate uh, artificial intelligence aspects into our normal functioning, uh, sometimes in the physical human body. Um, and if you add with that also the way in which artificial intelligence is implicated in a lot of the things that we normally interact with, and it becomes basically the infrastructure of the way we live our lives, um, it, it seems to me that it's getting harder and harder to make the distinction. Um, and so if you read Frank's book, I think the conclusion, the natural conclusion to draw from a historical standpoint is that Frank is basically uh, calling for a holding pattern in something that's just going to develop. And so in a sense, the kind of normative framework that we need with regard to artificial intelligence is one that I think should start at the outset presuming that it's going to be integrated with us. Oh, thank you, Steve. Frank, do you have a response to this this idea? Yeah, this is one of the most, uh, I think, uh, powerful critiques of a position like mine, is to bring up the cyborg and to bring up the, the real uh, current technological um, uh, merger of certain aspects of human cognition with technology, um, the ways in which human identity has been so deeply shaped by technologies of uh, communication and um, uh forms of computation. And I guess I have a couple of responses. Um, one would be that I think that at present, we, we do have examples, say, of people who uh, can use a prosthetic hand or arm, and we could envision those sorts of prosthetics becoming more and more effective and um, uh, 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 commonplace. 
But nevertheless, you still have um, the human, uh, the, the brain is still something that is sort of, I think, distinct from the machines that it's operating, right? And, and I do think there are some great science fiction novels that envision far more integration. So, for example, if you look at like Neil Stevenson's uh, recent uh, sci-fi novel, uh, Do- uh, The Fall or Fall, Dodge and Hell, really interestingly imagines, you know, the ways in which prosthetics could become much more integrated into people's lives. And he sort of combines, there's, there's visions for the end of the book of prosthetics and, and drugs sort of so altering people's consciousness that, you know, they've really gone to another type of consciousness that I think would be um, something that would be a, a tertium quid, like a third thing between the, the human and the mechanical. Um, and, and that's one where I, I, I think that, uh, but I think at the present, right now, I, I don't think that we're going, uh, that, that, that sort of uh, exceptional merger is happening in the present time. And then the question becomes, is it something to encourage? And I, I think that this is one where, I, on the one hand, um, the, the what Neil Stevenson is doing in that novel is, is brilliant in terms of portraying one way for human beings to sort of go in this more, I think, singularitarian direction. But I also found myself sort of hesitant at it and, and worried about, you know, uh, 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 the potential uh, misuses of it, like misuses or problematic deployments that you see in a, a series like the BBC's uh, Years and Years, which also has sort of an interesting sort of transhumanist uh, leitmotif. So I think that this is where I think that there, there's a lot to debate in some of these future scenarios. Um, and I think that the, being sure that if we are going in that direction, that it's quite a well-regulated uh, process would, would be important to me. So, Steve, are cyborgs something that we should potentially encourage? Well, I think, uh, Frank, uh, I'm glad that Frank brought up the issue that it is going to be a matter of whether we allow it, because for the most part, when we're talking about prosthetics, it's because there's medical reasons for it. Uh, but the interesting thing, of course, is I think that you would find quite a lot of uptake voluntarily. So, for example, even if you don't need to have your arms replaced, some people might want to have their arms replaced because they like the new functionalities that the prosthetic could provide, right? I mean, and so so this is where we get to some very interesting terrain. Now, Frank talks about it as a tertium quid, as if we're creating a new kind of being in between. Um, but I actually think this is a kind of alternative way of being human, okay? And I think this is quite an important distinction. I think it would be very important kind of legal distinction as well. And, and, and the way I kind of see the development of cyborgs is very much along the lines, and this is where the word trans, I think, makes a big difference here, right? I mean, trans, we know what trans means, right? We have transgender, we have even transracial these days. Well, we could have trans substrate, right? And there's a sense in which uh, if we're going to talk about alternative ways of being human, uh, that should be on the table. So if someone electively wants to replace a naturally functioning part of their body, right, or supplemented in a way that, in a sense, they don't need to from a strictly medical standpoint, um, There's good, the question is, is that allowable, right? Um, and is that an, a permissible alternative way of being human? Because, see, uh, I don't actually think that if, uh, you know, if this whole cyborg business was allowed, uh, it, it, you know, in a general kind of way, that it would lead to something singularitarian. And I think this is, I think this is, in a way, kind of queering the pitch too much. In fact, I, I tend to think of it as kind of uh, increasing the diversity 
of the human condition because people will opt for lots of different things, right? Uh, depending on what the you know, depending what the law allows and what the and what the market permits. Um, and so, what we're talking about here, I think, is a proliferation of types of humanity. And then there is, of course, a practical question: given the different needs of people who are enhanced in different kinds of ways, how they're all going to live together in society. That's a serious issue, a serious normative legal issue for sure. But it seems to me that this is the direction of travel and that and that we shouldn't really, you know, in a way, just because it is something that is, you know, in a way likely to happen full blown in in the future in some sense. Right. We, we, we should be preparing for it now. Well, let's let's take a step back for a moment and return to the, the motion of the debate and to the idea of AI. Because, Frank, in your book, you develop laws that promote complementarity, authenticity, cooperation, and attribution. And the reason you do that is because you believe that AI should capitalize on human strengths and take advantage of human limits. So how do you imagine AI will do that? You know, I think that the, the question of... AI capitalizing on human strengths is a really interesting one in the sense of uh, the future of work debate. So, you know, thinking about this book, this book was really meant as a, my, my new laws of robotics was really meant as an intervention in the future of work debate, where increasingly you were getting advocacy from a lot of uh, economists and engineers saying, if we can record what you do, and sort of figure out how you respond to each stimulus and then uh, put that into the actuator or into the uh, information processor of a robot, we will be able to um, uh, replace you, right? We can replace uh, what you do. And I think that what is uh, – the reason why I wanted to respond to that is that I think that first of all, there really is so much data out there and so many data streams that we need some level both of human creativity and we can talk about Margaret Bowden's work and others on, on the distinctiveness of human as opposed to AI creativity, which I think is quite interesting. But even beyond that, even if you think, well, there's no difference between human and AI creativity, uh, human governance, that there's sort of a role of human governance in uh, what are the data streams that we think are appropriate, what's off limits how much should go in, what types of data should be informing which types of uh, uh, human uh, or types of endeavors in, in medicine, journalism, education, et cetera. You know, is it a good idea or not to have a robot sort of taking a picture of every uh, student's face in a classroom every second and then processing that to see if they're engaged or not? Those are the questions that I think we really need to, to uh, govern and to think very deeply about. I mean, I think in, in thinking about, you know, the um, – so those are those are the the AI elements of it. I mean, I do think that we will at some point. I, I think return to this idea of um, the the uh, biological and the mechanical because I think that that divide and, and sort of questioning it or uh, adhering to it is going to be increasingly important. Um, but I think that ultimately, but right now with respect to AI, I'm really uh, trying to push for a vision where. As those decisions about what data to use and how to combine data streams go forward, um, there probably is going to be infinite work for humans, uh, not uh, not sort of a, a replacement of humans. But if we structure the economy correctly, I think infinite work for humans to figure out exactly how to uh, engage all of the new sensing and, and data that, that these AI systems are creating. Well, there we go, Steve. We might never even get to cyborgs because we will be replaced much before then. So, sort of, what's your response to uh, response well, to that I, idea? I mean, look, I, I think the issue about whether uh, robots can replace professionals is is going to be, um, you might say, uh, 
it'll be an economic issue when it gets down to it, because I think it's pretty straightforward that the way in which uh, even the most intelligent machines process data to do something comparable to what a professional does um, is different, right? It's different. And, and, and I think it's kind of a mistake to think the fact that it's different is, some, is somehow necessarily a mark against the machine, okay? Uh, and, and so I think a lot's going to depend on the economics of the situation about whether the humans actually get replaced, uh, because... Um, you know, uh, as often when technology replaces human labor, right, the technology that replaces it doesn't do exactly the same thing the human being did in exactly the same way, but it does it functionally equivalent, given the kinds of needs that people have for wanting this thing done in the first place, okay? Uh, and, and so it seems to me it's kind of an open question. There's no reason to think that professions have to continue existing, even if they do have a distinctive form of knowledge, Right. It seems to me these are sort of separate questions here. The functionality of expertise, given the kinds of environments in which it needs to act, is a separate question from the distinctiveness of expertise as a form of knowledge. And I think that and, and if you comp- and, it's, and, and you get Frank's argument off the ground if you conflate the two. Otherwise, they're separable. And it's an open question what you make of expertise in light of what you want expertise for. And a machine may do it better. Here's where I think I, I think Steve, you know, the, the idea of expertise, my my worry, and an idea that I've been developing since the book was published, is an idea of meta expertise. And I think that the the move that I so often see made in these areas is the argument that we're going to bring in quantitative experts, algorithmic experts, people in computer science or economics or engineering, who can look at any particular process, any particular professional process, and say, well, here's what education means. You know, here in the university, for example. Um, the purpose of going to university is to have a degree premium so that you're making at least 10,000 pounds per year more once you graduate than you, when you came in. So if that's my goal, I can give people a MOOC, you know, and that massive open online course can essentially replace the professors. And then if the, my students at the end of it are making 10,000 pounds more or 15,000 pounds more than they did at the end of, uh, at the beginning of it, I've replaced the, the professor, right? And I think that that worry, I think, is the, is the, uh, that we're going to see that increasingly in different areas. You see it, for example, with therapy apps, right? You say to people, well, the purpose of the therapy app is to get you on a Likert scale to say, I'm happier, you know, to say out of one to six, are you despairing or thrilled to go from a three to a five, okay? And if you can get people to sort of fill out the bubble and say, yeah, I, I went from a five after I had the, the therapy app, so it's it's as good as a, as a person. And I think that this meta-expertise question of sort of quantifying the purpose of activities by virtue of the, you know, meeting some type of external uh, metric or validator. Yeah, on that vision, you could sort of get rid of the professions or say, well, it's an economic question and they, they go. But I think there's other visions that would say, well, a lot of what the professions do is constitutive of the practice of, say, education, of yeah, that, medicine, et cetera. Yeah. But, Frank, you know as well as I do that, that you know, even though I agree with your vision of education, actually, so actually I don't believe that education uh, is reducible to something that a machine can do. So we agree on the normative principle, but as a matter of fact, right, academics are reinforced to actually behave like machines in the sense that would make them eminently replaceable. I mean, can't you figure that out? I mean, the reason why this this business is, is so, you know, this AI stuff really takes off is because we've actually kind of dumbed down professions to make them much much more routinized, much more made for purpose, right? And so, you know, all of these kind of normative ideals that are supposedly in the back of the constitutive nature of the knowledge, right? I mean, it, 
in a sense, that, that's not where the action is at the moment. You would need a revolution within the professions, right? You would, and that's what you would need. And, and that's what because, I'm trying to do. I mean, I'm trying to get a revolution in the professions. And I'm, I mean, and to, and to really just to, just to show how much I agree with your point there. I mean, I think that, you know, if I were to think of like, um, do I believe that like the, the uh, GPT-3 could eventually create a text generator that would have as many citations as I do? Right. If citations are all that matter, I think absolutely that you could do that. You could sort of look at the past stuff I've written. You have some sort of text generator that looks at the current uh, legal scholarship out there. And, you know, it could cer certainly become sophisticated enough that people start, you know, if you just sort of put my name on it or put whoever's name on it and then people just start like citing it, you know. But that's why I think it's so important to actually have this revolution in the professions. In a way, what the book is about is trying to get people to sort of say, hey, wait a second, you know, assert your power in this situation rather than let, let yourself be sort of swept Okay, let along. me make a prediction about that. All these the kind of mid-level <laughs> mid professionals, the people who do the routine stuff that are the bulk of the people who actually constitute professions, they're toast, okay? These people are gone, okay? Because the, the AI revolution has already moved fast enough to actually be able to take over their jobs in the next generation. And so you may know this, right? That this is something the legal profession is very worried about, where 60% of lawyers could be wiped out because most of them do routine work. Okay? I mean, I mean, you know, and, and in a sense, so what we're trying to protect at this point are like the real smart professionals, right? The You know, the ones who, as it were, are doing the things that aren't yet reducible to what the machines can do. And I'm all for that, right? But I think at the end of the day, it's going to end up reducing the ranks of the people in those professions, right? Those professions are not going to have as many people as they have had in the past, and they will be more elite in a way. Well, Frank, do you believe that policy and governance should protect some of these professions from, from the encroaching AI? I do, and I'll give two examples. I mean, I think... I think one example would be just to get directly on the legal profession, because I think it's something that I, I thought a lot about. I actually had to cut out my legal discussion from the book because it was too lawyerly. Um, but, <laughs> but I have thought a lot about it. And with respect to that, I mean, some of the empirical research is fascinating. Like if you look at James Besson's book, Learning by Doing, he's looked at, for example, paralegals and shown that like paralegals are, if anything, a much more routinizable job than what lawyers do, right? Because they're organizing paperwork, they're sort of identifying documents, they're uh, writing up some basic like factual things about like large quantities of data or whatever. And like they have expanded as a field. I mean, even tellers, bank tellers, of all people have, have expanded. And so, and, and you, but of course, I, I don't say that that's great, right? On the other hand, it could be that this is just a sign of a low productivity economy. So that, that I, I'm not going to say go. like, that's. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, there you go. Low productivity. Exactly. But, exactly. But, but, but that's, uh, what, that, that's, that's Britain, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I do think though, there are some very important human roles and having worked at a law firm and worked with paralegals, I, I, I found them, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, imagine. And looking at some of Lucy Suchman's research on sort of how different forms of computing were, were in law firms, et cetera, I think there's some really good qualitative cases to be made for uh, keeping on a lot of what they do. But with respect to protecting it, I think there, thinking about the mid-level, so I've talked a lot about doctors already, but I should have been talking also about nurses, right? Nurses or home health aides or home caregivers, or I think in, in Britain, there's a role of like visitors, like people just sort of visit the elderly. And, and I think that those are roles that like, I, I, I hope to see there being more investment in those roles to sort of build human connection. And, and I think that, you know, if, you, if, if from a very hard-headed economic perspective, you could say to an elderly person that wanted 
a visitor or a carer to visit them, could say, well, you know, we just need to bring you medicine and make sure that your temperature is a certain level and that you're taking your insulin, et cetera. So we're having the robot do that. But I tend to think that there's actually a lot, uh, there's there's something more valuable there in sort of a human role to, to visit. And I know that can be written off as a bit of sentimentality, but I also think that there's something, even if we thought about how you keep together a polity with some level of solidarity and human understanding, you might want to preserve roles like that. Teachers as well. I mean, I think that, you know, in respect to teaching, even if you could have a MOOC that, you know, knew far more, I'll put no in quotations marks, than any particular teacher, you'd still want that sort of human interaction. Journalism, too, I think would be a great example to get into because I think journalism and finance are the areas where I think AI and robotic, AI at least, has made the most inroads. And I think with a pretty destructive effect. And so I would like to see yeah. a sort of roll that yeah. back a bit. I mean, I, if I may pick up on the business of uh, of, of the carers uh, with the old people, I mean, um, I think the issue the issue is a little bit different. I think, Frank, because in fact, the uh, the, the uh, response of old people to the android companions, right, that already exist and are in fact a big part of the industry of AI at the moment. Um, basically, the biggest part of the non-military side. Um, is positive, right? Uh, and and indeed, uh, these uh, these elderly people uh, develop uh, you know emotional bonds to these machines, and that's certainly not unheard of in other kinds of contexts as well. And and so this is in a way goes back to the point about cyborgs, right? And and in, and in a sense, what is the scope of the human here, right? Because I think what you're what you're beginning to see, especially with these more sophisticated androids that are uh, very much in, very interactive with with humans, especially when the humans you know don't have other humans around, um, is that they in fact develop human like bonds. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And, and it seems to me this is part of kind of the way in which our conception of the human is being expanded. Right. That these android companions. Right. Given that, you know, if we're thinking about that, the, uh, the population is is aging and I don't know how fast you think we can be manufacturing nurses and carers. But my guess is right. I don't think it's going to be able to meet the pace of people getting old and decrepit. OK, I mean, that's just my view offhand. And, and, and so these android companions are likely to be a bigger and bigger thing. And so far, the results look kind of good in terms of humans being able to form bonds with them. And, 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 and you know, we're, you know. The issue here, I guess, the question to you, um, you know, in terms of your conception of humanity, um, is do you think there's something wrong with that? I mean, do you think there would be something wrong with with people developing bonds with these, you know, androids, um, you know, uh, that are human-like in, in, in terms of many different dimensions? Because I do think that is the direction of travel. So would you stop that, too? Do you think that's dehumanizing? I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know where you are on this, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go in two directions. So I'll, I'll go in two directions, one on a sort of a macro level, and then more on the sort of micro. And on the macro level, I mean, just to be Provocative. I mean, imagine that you had, um, say, the uh, 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 minister of uh, internal affairs or of immigration or of technology in Japan saying, one of our most important goals here is to make sure that we develop more and more carer androids so that we don't have to rely on um, immigrant labor coming from abroad that will be different than our culture. Right. Hmm. So we're going to have interesting. A, interesting. You know, and, and that's I think interesting. That really, okay, where are you going with this? So, 
So my, my worry is that, 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 like, essentially, it's one thing to sort of say, well, you know, we have a labor shortage and therefore we need robots to come in and, and do the do this work. It's another thing, though, to contextualize whether there's actually a labor shortage and then to say, well, maybe there's not. That In fact, that there are a lot of people around the world who would love to be uh, in these roles or have an opportunity to be in the, you know, moving to whether it be Europe, the U.S., Japan, etc. Um, there was a recent book by uh, Matt Iglesias here in the U.S. called One Billion Americans. And I'm not, you know, not that I, I, I take that as a as normative goal, but I mean, it's possible, you know, if, if it were as dense as Brooklyn, um, it could be, uh, certainly you could have that happen. And so, you know, to, with that respect, I mean, I think that you, you have, um, uh, I think we have to be aware of the potential complicity of tech, uh, visions of a highly technologized future with respect to um, uh, some, I think, uh, exclusivist visions about, you know, the future of labor. So that's where I think is, you know, I, I, I would offer that might be called a broadly um, globalist left critique of, say, uh, uh, sort of an accelerated uh, entry that's of robotics. That's kind of interesting, actually, Frank. i got to think about that. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> no, but I, will, <laughs> but, but I will also say, I mean, I, I worry about that because, I, I mean, I, I just sort of feel like it's, it's, it's uh, it sort of – it plays into just as there's concerns now about like ecofascism, right? There's a concern that like, oh, if you're a really hardcore environmentalist, and then you say, well, you know, our unspoiled landscape means that there can no longer there can can't be more than you know 330 million people in America, or else there goes the landscape. You know, I think there's something similar about that. But I think you know, in terms on the personal level. And here's where I think we, we it will be a bit controversial, and you know, but I, I'll, I'll advance the idea. I think that with the robot says that it cares, it's a form of deception. I think that to the extent that the robot is sort of saying it, 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 it can simulate the actions that would be characteristic of a caring human, but I don't think it actually can experience it because I think part of what makes care so precious or valuable is that you can step away from it, right? You can choose not to care, whereas like the robot is kind of, now of course maybe you could program some sort of subroutine that like it randomly cares or doesn't care depending on what you do, but then it sort of becomes like a game, you know, <laughs> in that way, and, then, and maybe gamification of elder care is the future, I don't know, but you know, if you, 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 so if you do the right things, the robot will like simulate care for you, but, but I, I sort of feel like there's something different there. There's something, there's some unbridgeable divide between uh, those roles. And I mean, I, I also apply that, some of that idea in, in, in judging and in sort of in, in legal context too. But that's what I worry about with respect to sort of the elder care issue is that it's it's not, it's not the, it's, it's sort of deceiving the elderly person into thinking there's caregiving. And the last point I guess I'd make is just, I think that when you have robotics like the PARO, the robotic seal from Japan, when it's implemented with like as part of a caring team and like people are talking about it and saying, oh, you know, isn't it cute? You know, let's play with it, et cetera. That's great. You know, whereas I think that like if it's sort of if you're sort of told, hey, here's your paro and people aren't going to visit you anymore. I think most people would not like that. <laughs> most most wouldn't wouldn't prefer that. And I, that, so that would be my, my concern. Uh, can, can I can I respond briefly to this? I mean, because first of all, uh, I thought that that's a very very interesting things you're saying, Frank. Um, and and the business about the deception, of course, that's in your book. Uh, for those of you who haven't read it, it that that part is certainly there. Um, but I want to say so. I'll say something equally provocative about carers. I don't know if when we you know when when we regard someone as caring for us and we think that they've cared for us well, I don't know to what extent we're actually concerned about their motivation or what's going through their heads, if anything. Um, and it seems to me, and from that standpoint. Um, that's no different than, you know, not knowing exactly what the algorithm is, whether the algorithm that's programming the Android care may be playing a game with us, like you were suggesting. I mean, there's a sense in which the human being might be doing that, too. I mean, we 
don't really know. I mean, you see, you're you see, uh, because it's so it seems to me that your notion of, of deception here, it, it, it presumes that we actually know what's going on in the human carer's head. Right. Uh, and that the human carer's head is full of nice thoughts about the person they're caring for, whereas the robot is just this kind of mechanically, algorithmically programmed thing. Right. That just happens to fool the old lady, you know, uh, and it seems to me that both that the minds of both the human and the machine are opaque to the person who's interacting with them. You, you seem a little uh, suspicious of nurses, Steve. I think that's rather a larger issue about how you've received British healthcare. I, I, I think there's, uh, there's something there. something else but, going on there. But, but, but before, before we gamify Granny, let's let's take a let's take a step back and and really look at what's at the core of this, which is the idea of counterfeiting humanity. And as you said there, Steve, Frank actually has in the book a, a law against the idea of counterfeiting humanity. Humanity, but isn't there a good argument to to develop to to innovate with the idea of or the aim to uh, counterfeit humanity? Isn't there a good argument to develop human level AI? Because we'd learn so much from that project. We'd learn so much about what it means to be human from trying to develop AIs in the image and likeness of us. Are you who? You, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, are, I, this sounds like something that Frank would be provoked by. <laughs> let, 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 let's 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 let, let's see Frank's uh, let's see Frank's uh, response to the idea that you know maybe not going down the route of developing human AI is gonna is gonna uh, stifle AI innovation and then Steve I, I want to hear your response for why there's a good argument to develop AI that that tries to mimic what it means to be human. You know, so I'll think about it on a couple level, and, and I, a couple levels. I think one sort of thinking more on the one to five year time frame, and the other thinking on you know a much longer time frame, like you know going out like decades. On the one to five year time frame, I mean, the more most realistic version of this I could think of would be bots online that simulate human views, points of view, humor, responses, etc. And you know, you could say that this is. A really interesting way in which, you know, as we try to develop the bot, as we see how people react with the bot, um, as, you know, we we have both the example of Microsoft Taze as an un, uh, unsuccessful example, but also I think Microsoft did Zhao Ice in um, China. And there was a great article in Sixth Tone about uh, people uh, sort of find, having really deep attachments to uh, Zhao Ice as sort of a virtual girlfriend or something like that. Um, and Line, I think the Japanese company has also promoted these sorts of, uh, of simulations of human companions or human interest and, and dialogue. And I think that the, the reason why I, I'm very hesitant about those things is because I worry a lot uh, about the potential for individuals to be drawn into this virtual world excessively as opposed to sort of a more uh, real or authentic human uh, connections. Now, I realize that there is a whole school in digital sociology, the critiques of digital dualism or critics of digital dualism uh, like Nathan Jurgensen, others who would say that I'm being uh, – would probably say I'm being a romantic humanist. I think Ben Tarnoff recently was uh, complaining about romantic humanism in the work of Sherry Turkle and Shoshana Zuboff, which, upon which I rely in, in, in my work. But I think that it's not necessarily well first of all i think that like uh 
Where, what's the alternative, right? I guess, should it, would it be classical humanism? In which case, it seems like more of an aesthetic uh, preference. Or would it be sort of anti-humanism, transhumanism, um, uh, what, what have you? And, and I think I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with the romantic humanist view of staying with, or at least with the humanistic view, uh, of trying to encourage um, more human-to-human uh, uh, -human interaction as opposed to trying to replace those forms of interaction, conversation, um, quintessentially human roles with um, uh, robotic or AI simulacra. So that'll, but I, I've already talked a lot. So let me just put that out there and then I'll, I'll get into the longer term vision as well uh, later. Uh, unless, I mean, the longer term vision I think would be um, that would get to why not have something like Sophia, right? Just walk amidst people. Right, something like Sophia or the robot from Ex Machina, um, Eve, I think was the name of that robot, et cetera. Why, why am I opposed to something like that? That, I think, gets much more to a question of um, uh, resources and both competition for resources and uh, human attention, affection, uh, the good things in life by robots as opposed to people. And I tend to think that that, that I worry a bit about because I think that there's a real um, – that, that uh, a proliferation of such humanoid robots, to me, it, it either leads people to accept them as sort of human equals – which I think has certain problems given that we don't actually share um, the same existential dilemmas, right? We just, we just don't. We're, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of existential dilemma. Like needing to find a power supply I think is very fundamentally different than needing to find food, you know, or find food or water or something like that. Although we can debate that. And I, and I think that also there's a there's – a, so I think that that to me is, is misleading. And then the problem becomes um, once you really understand how misleading that is, uh, sort of uh, either eroding or reducing uh, people's ability to uh, fully value the, the humans around them. So, I mean, I, I have sort of a logic, I think, there, and that's why I use that counterfeiting metaphor in the book that I feel like just as, you know, if you have counterfeit money going around, that reduces the value of real money. If you have a counterfeit of sort of entities able uh, uh, expressing human emotions, expressing demands for attention, et cetera, that that in turn, um, I think, devalues the, the real thing, which is real human beings uh, expressing uh, these types of, of uh, either demands or, or emotions, et cetera. I mean, Steve, why don't we just get these humans to get out of the way so that AI can be the future version of us? Uh, well, uh, uh, let me, <laughs> there's something, well, there is something to that, but let, let me just start by saying, I think Frank makes humans seem too natural. Okay. Um, and, and I think that the point I would start by saying is that being human is hard. Okay. People have to be taught to be human. All right. Uh, you know, it's it's not, you know, so we're talking about, you know, as it were doing AI and learning more what it's like to be human. Well, this is kind of also what you do when you kind of interact with people, raise children, educate them and so forth. You learn a lot about what it is to be a human being under all of those kinds of conditions. Right. And this is part of the collective memory base by which human beings figure out who they are, right? And so, as it were, AI is just part of that mix. That's kind of the way I look at it, right? AI is one more thing that, in a way, can enable us uh, to figure out what it is to be human. And if you look at the history of the concept of the human, right, it's been very fluid, right, in terms of to whom or to what does it apply. Um, and I think it remains, you know, and it will remain that way in the future. And so that's kind of a point, one point I would make. And also, I'm, I'm always a little kind of puzzled about this, uh, 
this this worry about the virtual it seems to me that as soon as humans adopted you know as soon as humans generated culture they were in a virtual reality right culture and, and, and humans interact with culture all the time they define themselves in terms of culture right whether we're talking about fashion or art or drama right or music or any of this kind of stuff literature all of these things are virtual realities through which human beings define the meanings of their lives and sometimes think that's more important than their physical bodies and interacting with other physical human beings. And what, are they crazy, Frank? Are all these people who think culture is really important crazy? They are the pioneers of virtual reality. No, this is a very good challenge. And, you know, here, I think that if you were to think about, so let's let's really reduce this to like something that's quite concrete, right? And imagine, for example, a person who is uh, reading a book uh, as opposed to a person who, say, is interacting with a robot that is, say, a fictional uh, uh, that is sort of uh, its its idea in in being robotic is that it is like a, um, uh, a meant to replicate, say, a character in the novel. Say, so for example, I, I may rather than reading, um, uh, you know, uh, Jane Eyre, I might interact with uh, the robotic version of Jane Eyre or something, right? And I think that what what I think is really important to distinguish between those two forms of um, uh, interaction is. With respect to the novel, and this is something that, you know, I, I have to admit, I am not a literary scholar, but I've gotten increasingly interested in literature as a form of what I would call non-propositional knowledge, right? Non-algorithmic, non-propositional, rather it's sort of a way of sort of structuring an experience of the imagination. And I think that with respect to the, the reading the novel, one has a certain, uh, uh, both you're engaged, you're living in its reality, and yet you also have a number of degrees of freedom in terms of how you imagine it, how you connect it to other things, what's going on in sort of your mental image of uh, the characters and their interactions. And I think that suddenly becomes prematurely concretized in the form of, say, the Jane Eyre robot. And so I, I worry that like – I What think about that the Jane Eyre actress? <laughs> no, seriously, right? If you yeah. have a sort of little, a little, you know, mini series that does Jane Eyre, and you're going to be there's going to be some Hollywood actress there, or you could be diverted say, well, you know, this actress is concretizing Jane Eyre. What's right. the difference? I I think that there are important differences in terms of thinking about uh, the affordances of the different technologies, right? Of reading, of writing as one, of the movie as other, as the robot as another. But I think that the problem, though, becomes and, – and here again, I mean, I think that with respect to the movie as opposed to the reality, um, in the most advanced versions of uh, sort of a robotic uh, – uh, the ability of robots to take on human roles or to be treated as humans uh, with rights, you would say that like, well, the robot Jane Eyre also you have to treat that per that like a person. And I think that's where I would draw the line, right? I mean, I'm drawing. I'm trying to draw a line between sort of saying that I know I you are, Frank. <laughs> I know you're trying to draw a line. The line's slipping away in the sands. But but no, no, no. Okay. So so so. But when you say that, right? When you say that that uh, you want to draw a line and say that uh, you know uh, that that if we if we actually uh, if we actually took the Jane Eyre robot, uh, you know, as as proper Jane Eyre in some sense, that that then uh, we would have to give it rights. And so I, I agree. That there, that that I'm not just saying any old robot ought to be given rights. Okay, so let's be clear about that. But I do think that 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 there should be a threshold for giving rights to androids that is substrate neutral. 
In other words, it shouldn't be prejudiced against the fact, you know, so the Android is just going to be, it, at the end of the day, an Android's an Android. And, and, and unless you're just going to say, and maybe this is what you're going to say, Frank, that because it is an Android, because it is silicon-based, because it is based on algorithms, by definition, it cannot have rights. Is that your position? Yes. So you're a substrate. <laughs> I am a substrate. I will certainly say that. And, and here's why I'll explain why I think that's a reasonable position. Um, I think that, first of all, to sort of like the, the the demand that you've made, Steve, it reminds me of the structure of the automators who say that all the jobs can be automated, right? They just say, well, tell me what the job is. And then once you list out all of its, its particulars and give me measurable objectives and metrics whereby I can meet those goals, then however I do it, I do it, right? And so we don't demand that. That, for example, uh, when I go on a flight, that it looked like a bird, you know, it can be a plane, it can be a big aluminum tube. And so it does the job and therefore the flight works, right? And the same thing could be said about the jobs. I think that there's something really fundamentally different there. But first of all, I, I object to that because I think that the very process of um, deciding what are the most important aspects of a job are or any any. Uh, professional role in society or even uh, non-professional roles is a political question that is you know, going to be very hard to sort of turn into an engineering question. Um, sometimes it can be done, but, but especially with the professions I talk about in the book, it's hard to do. But with respect to the, you know, the, the persons and the, and the demand to say, well, give us a list. I mean, your, your demand reminds me of a cartoon from the, uh, uh, the Kurzweil book, the singular, I think, uh, Age of Spiritual Machines, where they have a person in a corner and he's writing like, a human being cannot recognize faces and then he just has to cross it out and then ball it up and throw, you know, throw out the piece of paper and a human being can't do this. And he keeps sort of running into tasks that the computer can actually do. And so the idea is, well, eventually it'll do all the tasks. And I think though that the, that if we were to really think about what is the foundation, say if there, if there is some sort of, uh, the extent there is a, uh, uh, physical, biological, uh, or other foundation, to a commonality of the human in terms of being rights-bearing entities, it is in this, the, the shared plight that we face as entities that are embodied uh, uh, in a certain uh, – in, in, in carbon, you know, as opposed to in silico and in and embodied the way that we are. And so therefore, I think that, you know, that substrate really does matter. Limited lifespan does matter. These other things do matter. I give the example in the book toward the end of a robotic cat. So I think even with respect to animals, like I'd be very hesitant to say that if someone had a robotic cat, that it, like we, it should be, it's like they're a pet, like an ordinary cat. Because, uh, for example, imagine if the robotic cat broke its leg you know, it sort of jumped off something and then broke its leg and then starts uh, crying in pain. It could have been programmed otherwise, right? You could have programmed the robot cat to be uh, to do something otherwise, and then all the ways in which the robot uh, person might demand certain consideration for its speech, for its ability to get power, for its ability to own property, whatever it might demand. You could have programmed it otherwise. So I think to the extent that you could have avoided the very dilemma uh, that would occasion the rights-bearing status of the entity by programming it otherwise, that in itself denies, the, I think, the normative validity of the claim for the rights themselves. But you can program people not to want certain things and so forth. I mean, you don't program them literally with algorithms, but you could train people not to want to demand certain kinds of rights and things. This is why liberal democracy is such a unique feature of the history of human civilization. It's not, right? You have to kind of get people thinking a certain way and teach them a certain way of thinking about themselves and the value of the individual and all of that kind of jazz. Uh, and that needs to be taught, right? That needs to be learned, right? Among humans, 
forget about androids among humans. So, so I mean, I think Frank, you know, you, you know, you're 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 kind of presupposing, you're you're sort of making it seem as though a lot of this stuff that actually involves quite a lot of training and that could be trained otherwise. Think of China, right? China, you know, is an example of a place where people don't seem to want to have all kinds of rights that we demand in this part of the world. It's not because they're robots, okay? Um, and, and so I, I just wonder whether this kind of distinction that you're trying to draw between the human, you know, and, and the android real, really holds because, there, you know, we, it, it seems to me that the rights thing – so. My view would be right because it's it's it sounds like because you you probably know that in artificial intelligence re, uh, in in the ethics of AI there is a whole live discussion taking place about right the kinds of capacities that AI ought to be built with or not built with right right and this is kind of what you're touching on and so uh, there are some AI people who make the argument that um, we should program AI to be slaves right uh right to be slaves right so they never get to a certain kind of level of reflection consciousness whatever right uh, you know in other words they don't get to the point where where we would be in some way forced to give them rights because they in some sense remain tools right they remain extensions of what we want and so forth um and 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 there are some people you know in an ai ethics there is this kind of school that says that's the moral thing to do but then there are other people and i guess i'm on the other camp on this you know which says well look um i don't see what it seems to me that this is a kind of a different issue right in the sense that i see it as a way if we're talking about ai as in some sense an extension of our humanity Right. It's kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like we're 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 kind of building inferior versions of ourselves for our own satisfaction. There's an ethical problem there, too. Right. And and so um, it seems to me that this is where I think the ambiguity of the human comes in, because on the one hand, as you were suggesting in the earlier part of your remark, um, there is a sense go back to the cartoon from Kurtzweil, right? There is, that there is a sense in which, right, that the human, the human essence is fugitive, right? So in other words, it's what the robot can't do, right? And the robot keeps on doing more and more things. And so what we are is something that leaps beyond it, at least for a while. And we just keep on fleeing, in a sense. We keep on fleeing embodiment, right? And there is a whole way of thinking about the human, right? A kind of transcendent notion of the human that is not limited to embodiment, which this actually fits, right? Right? This kind of issue of the human as having a fugitive essence. But on the other hand, we might think of the human as a concept that has, as it were, a kind of ambiguous scope in terms of what material things are encompassed under it, right? Which may include machines, right? Uh, and, and that there's a kind of open question, a kind of moral question, but not a kind of... I mean, because the, the problem I have with you, Frank, and this is where you rely on Hubert Dreyfus and all these people too much, is you make it sound too ontological, it, it's really much more ethical and political about whether something counts as human. It isn't some deep ontological thing about shared life experience, because we can have a shared life experience with a robot just as much as we can with another human being, because we don't know. We don't. We never get inside the human to begin with, right? It isn't. Well, the, this is depth, this is where. The, well, not yet, I mean, anyway, Frank. Yeah. I'm going to let you respond to that. 
Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I, I, I mean, this idea that we never get inside the human. I mean, it does remind me, there was, there was a, Jeff Hinton once said, um, I, I think that I have it cited in the book, um, that, you know, the, the human mind is a black box and the, and the AI is a black box. And, you know, therefore, and, and I think that this is a common rhetorical story. I mean, I believe that Hinton said this. I, I, I haven't, I don't have it exactly in my memory, you know what I'm saying? But I, I'm pretty sure that there was some AI, uh, very luminary of AI, said that. And I've certainly seen that rhetoric a lot, you know, to say, well, you never have gotten into the into the mind of the human. But I think that that really is – that discounts all of the ways in which literature and law and social science and ethnomethodology and, and other ways of describing mental states and sort of giving people a sense of mental states. By externalizing I, them. By externalizing them. That's the point, Frank. That's the whole point of ethnomethodology and all these things you're talking about and the law and everything else. It externalizes the mental state so other people can recognize them. It turns life into a Turing test. I, I think that's just too. I think that's too reductionist. I don't think it's just a matter of. Of I think, and it also is radically skeptical. I mean, it's like too reductionist and too radically skeptical. You'll be skeptical. That, go ahead. I mean, but go but ahead. I mean, in, in terms of the. But but here's something that I want to make a sort of a, a, a peace offering, perhaps, as a way of a, <laughs> as a, a, a concession, is that yes, I mean, I think that your your point about the problem of. Um, so the, the, uh, about my naturalizing or universalizing what may well be a uh, particular conception of the human as something that is like humanity writ large or as something that is sort of like the, the human generally. Sure. I mean, I think that that would be something that I would I, – I think is, is a potential problem with – uh, uh, the rhetoric of the work, you know, and I think that, you know, you, you could say that there is something that, that is, uh, and I think of like uh, Charles Taylor's book, Sources of the Self, right? I mean, if, I mean, what he, I, I'd say that, you know, b- 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 aside from Dreyfus, I mean, Taylor is my biggest influence. Dreyfus is also an influence, you know, and I think there's, I think he's actually still underrated and we can, we can discuss sort of the aspect of dry, aspects of Dreyfus, but I, but what Taylor is doing and sort of giving this very, very broad history and, and really sort of an effort to, reconcile patterns of thought, right? If you were to compare like the thought of communitarians, you have someone like, you know, Alistair McIntyre talking about three rival versions of moral inquiry that are incompatible, the Thomistic, the Nietzschean, and the more humanistic, right? I think what Taylor is doing is the opposite. He's trying to say, well, you can bring together all of these forms of thought into something that is sort of this, this grander conception of where our, our idea of a self came from. And acknowledging that like probably people uh, living, say, in Europe in 700 um, uh, common era, that their that their selfhood would be very different than our selfhood, you know. Uh, but still, but but still trying to tell a story of a common human selfhood. I am trying to tell that story or draw on that story in this book. But most of humanity lives outside of the European world. Yeah, but I, but here I would they heavily disagree with your Taylor's point about story. Well, they're not part of Taylor's story. This to, is the to, point. To, to, to not get uh, uh, to not go down too far down that route, I want to return us back a little bit to the to the motion here because uh, listening to what both of you are saying, <laughs> really this idea of externalizing all of those things and codifying all of those things that make us human that becomes the raw material through which AI is trained to learn what it means to be human and then teaches us to be more robotic. And and Frank, I feel 
that it's really that that you're trying to to challenge challenge right now today because the the way in which we regulate today right now the sorts of AI that we have that is uh, using all of the information about our social interactions online um, that is having a fundamental impact of how we're going to express ourselves in the near future and and Elon Musk was recently on the Joe Rogan podcast this month where he argued for the need for a regulatory body for AI one that's similar to the Federal Aviation Administration or the US Food and Drug Administration and he said it's important to have that right now to stop these sorts of things so uh, firstly Frank where do you stand on this sort of idea that, that we could have a, a federal administration for AI so I, I mean I like it I mean I think I think good good for Elon and so you know and so my my idea there would be of course I mean it doesn't really fit well with his sort of overall uh, libertarian uh, politics so I don't know exactly how that fits together but I mean I I wrote co-authored an article in 2008 called Federal Search Commission I mean I was calling even then I mean admittedly because I did not have tenure um, I put it as a question mark. So, you know, I knew that basically given the, given the uh, neoliberal uh, uh, priors of a lot of the people that might be judging me, I could not call for it at that time. But then, you know, now I can. And so, you know, but I, I, I basically said, you know, hey, but this is me and Oren Braha, good scholar at the University of Texas, said, let's think about whether we had a Federal Communications Commission in the 1930s and that search engines are just as epical a shift in human communication. And I think about going from like newspapers to radio and TV, they said, we got, this is so different than newspapers. We got to have something to regulate it. And I think the same thing should have happened, you know, by the mid 2000s with search engines. And I testified before U.S. Congress in 2008 to say the same thing as well. Um, So I want to see that. And I think there's been calls for an FDA for algorithms, sort of saying that like a lot of very important algorithms should be pre cleared. I've made that argument about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So I've said that, you know, before you use hiring software that part that analyzes people's faces and, and emotional expression, that they should be licensed, you know, before you can use them, you'd have to actually apply and be and demonstrate that they're not racially discriminatory and that they actually do what they say they do. So that to me is, you know, a, a, a very good first step is sort of thinking about that. Now, the big question becomes institutionally, do you have like an overarching AI regulatory body or do you say, well, you got to have that expertise in uh, employment in the Employment Commission when it comes to employment, and the Human Rights Commission when it comes to discrimination, and the Human Health Commission when it comes to you know uh, AI diagnost- diagnostics. Probably that's better than having one giant AI commission. You know, you, you just localize the AI expertise to existing agencies. But yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good idea and, and very relevant to the book's message. Yeah, yeah, and having one global AI um, administration it gives us Skynet, doesn't it? Basically, that's what, <laughs> well, that's but, what but that but thing was is, supposed to do in the first place but, before but it realized is, it, it was becoming the thing. This but this is actually Steve, an important point. This is actually an important point that you've just raised, Luke, because I, I'm. So I find a lot of these proposals that you're saying, Frank, attractive, uh, you know, especially the licensing of the algorithms and stuff like that. The things that can actually be hap- that can actually be uh, done within national borders. Um, uh, but I think with some of this other stuff, you know, where we're talking about data flows that are moving all over the place, where the servers in all kinds of countries, right, and the companies, of course, aren't even pinned down to particular con- countries themselves, right? The only reason why China has this kind of you know, fortress, as it were, cyber fortress, is because it has these enormous firewalls, and and it's and it's uh, you know big data firms are basically 
you know, co-owned by the government, right? But the political economy of the situation in the rest of the world isn't like that at all. Thing, right? The the the, the companies exist in a very in very loosely connected to nation states, even if they're politically sympathetic to them. They're very hard to regulate, right? Beyond a certain kind of level, as every you know, as the United States and the European Union and Britain and everyone else has tried to you know has realized. And so, unless you do have something that's global, like a you know, at a United Nations style level, or or something like the World Trade Organization organization might take over, you know, unless you have it at that level, I, I actually think that the amount of regulation that in practice you can have will be relatively limited. I mean, Frank, do, do you think we need something similar to international space law for AI, perhaps? Well, I do think that would be a good step. I mean, I think, although I, I will say I was involved in one dialogue that was among um, Austra- primarily Australians... Uh, people from the U.S. and uh, a delegation from China, and it was really hard to come to uh, common <laughs> common principles. And so I, I worry a bit about the internationalization of regulation. I think it may be very difficult to to come to common principles there. I, I remember particularly when we were talking about facial recognition, many of the people from the U.S. were really committed to trying to uh, ban it, at least among the academics there. And when it was brought up, the uh, leader of the Chinese delegation would say, "Well, but look at what we've done with child kidnapping. We've really brought down child kidnapping." And, you know, that seemed to almost end the argument or just be sort of the critical utilitarian point as opposed to the more deontological point that was being made, you know, on, on the other side. So that's what I worry about. But I also think that, you know, just to, to give the counter about the ability of, of states to regulate, I think what what Australia is doing right now with Google is quite encouraging, right, in terms of Australia saying, well, we're going to demand that you actually pay for news. And, of course, there's so many problems. The devil's in the details. It may well have been instigated by uh, Murdoch and, you know, uh, forces that are not exactly, uh, I think, emancipatory. But but at least you do, you do see the possibility for a, even, a, even a relatively small country to, to start talks with Microsoft and say, hmm, you know, if Google decides to just pull out of here because we're trying to make it pay for news, then maybe you'll develop an Australian search engine or something that's like more tailored to Australia. And, you know, South Korea's neighbor um, uh, and, and uh, Kakao is one of their social networks now. I mean, these things I think are quite encouraging in terms of talking about a, a diversity of uh, ways of, of exploring AI and developing AI. And so that's going to be really fascinating. I also remember, by the way, there was a great paper from like 2005, I think, saying the need for a Portuguese language search engine. And the idea was that like people in Portugal and Brazil would be disserved by having to go through a largely American company and searching for stuff. And so that's an area where I think, you know, the, an effort by national regulators would be good um, to to keep doing what they're doing. But there are some things, especially in arms control, where you need some sort of international agreement. And I, I hope we see a lot more of that soon. I mean, Steve, don't you think governments just get in the way? Aren't these organizations, aren't they motivated to be very cautious as opposed to cultivate technological advance? Do you think they could actually do more harm when it comes to innovation and stifle innovation than actually do us some good? You, this is a, I mean, <laughs> this is a real can of worms. This question. I mean, as a matter of fact, of course, the internet would never have existed if the government didn't get involved to begin with, right? Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley is basically, you know, a kind of Cold War uh, project that just got devolved once the Cold War was over. I mean, that's, I mean, so, so I don't think that the government is necessarily. Um, in fact, DARPA, if we, if um, you know, perhaps not. 
Frank's favorite government agency. Um, but, uh, but DARPA actually has a pretty good track record in terms of being very innovative, usually on the military side of things, with regard to development of artificial intelligence. You know, so we talk about virtual reality simulators, we talk about drones, right? I mean, all of that, DARPA was very much involved, and then that got sort of rolled out into the commercial sector afterwards. Um, so all the video games... All those violent video games that make so much money, right? I mean, that that came out of DARPA originally. Um, and, and so, no, the government actually can be very innovative if that's what you want, right? And the government also can have a regulatory role. I mean, I don't, I'm not an enemy of the government. I mean, I just think that there that there's, a, there's kind of limits to what, what states can do. Um, and and a lot has to do with the political economy of these of these firms, Google, Amazon, etc. Right, and the way they've been allowed to grow largely because this tech stuff is very innovative, and, and you know Frank knows this very well. Right, it's a great challenge to the law. Right, in terms of what the models are for regulating it. Right, what you know is it a utility? Right, I mean there are all kinds of models of what already exists in the law that you might think applies to this, but but it's not clear. Right, uh, and and and. So because there aren't these clear legal intuitions about regulation, right, it's tough. Right. I mean, uh, so so uh, I'm very sympathetic, actually, with lawyers. It's, it's actually it's something, you know, it's in, it's innovative for lawyers. Right. I mean, it's a great it'll be a great <laughs> yeah. growth area for lawyers. I think it'll be very hard. Right. Uh, for AI to replace lawyers who are specializing in the regulation of AI, because I think that's very innovative stuff how you actually go about doing it, right? So so I'm sympathetic. I, I actually am very sympathetic with this with this aspect of, of, of Frank's project. I mean, Frank, we're often told that regulators in the courts can't keep up with technological advances. So how are we even supposed to make this sort of regulation possible? You know, I think that the the that idea that it's hard to catch up is is really to me a resource problem. You know, uh, there was a terrific post recently about the uh, New York State vaccine rollout. And the New York Times did a story saying, look, this engineer from uh, some tech firm uh, made a vaccine website for $50 that looks better than the New York State one. Okay. And, um, and, and then someone sort of started digging in, into this and started saying, well, you know, but wait a second. Like, the New York State people, they have to make sure that it works for everybody. Uh, they have to do all these other sort of safeguards. And the last thing they noted was that at the firm where this guy was, the lowest salary for a software engineer was about $180,000. And then at the New York State Department of Information Technology, the highest salary was about $180,000, right? <laughs> so to be the lowest entry-level person at the, at, the, at the private sector entity, you'd be paid probably more than someone that had spent you know, their life in uh, government IT or something like that. And so to me, like there are uh, jurisdictions like Singapore that say, look, we're going to really pay our public servants well. We're not going to let them do the revolving door thing. We're going to actually – and I mean I, I have become, I, I should say as well, I mean much more um, interested in – and empathetic with some of the approaches of um, East Asian technocracies um, over, you know, as I've studied this topic and as, you know, of, of post-COVID uh, especially, you know, and I think that there's a lot to learn there from those sort of ways of, uh, of organizing um, a, a bureaucratic approach and understanding of, of, of AI. So I think that that's, that's part of the issue um, is a resource question. And I always tell, you know, when I talk to people in the U.S. government, I, I, I can – routinely tell them you need 10 times as big a budget just to do the bare minimum of what you're supposed to be doing, you know, 
I mean, look at the Federal Trade Commission on, on privacy, other things like that. And they could have it. They could easily have 10 times that budget. It's trivial compared to the, the budgets of the companies they're regulating. There's just not the political will to tax those firms or to uh, create mm-hmm. the money to, to do it. True. True. Well, as, as we come to the end of this discussion, I, I guess I want to focus on something that maybe both of you might agree on. Uh, do you think we need uh, to engage in anticipatory social research that actually um, not merely responds, but actually shapes technological advancement? And starting with you, Steve, how can, I guess, uh, social research in the humanities help to respond and, uh, sorry, help shape technological advance? Well, I think. Well, there are, there are lots of ways to do it. I think one way, of course, uh, is through the sort of thing that we already see. Frank's book is full of examples of movies, right, of movies where a lot of this stuff is sort of played out in various ways and all kinds of moral dilemmas and other issues, right? Are, and I think that's actually quite good. And I would have thought, you know, given that Frank has a generally kind of dystopic view of these things, he should be quite happy with the slant that, that the movie industry has taken on this. And I know, uh, you know, you know, based on my own contacts with Silicon Valley, that this is one of the things that they hate about Hollywood, right? That Hollywood tends to be quite negative and, you know, critical, right, of uh, of these developments. And I think, you know, so so in this, and, and I, I think, though, uh, it is true that because these, um, these, uh, these movies are actually quite sophisticated when it gets right down to it, um, I think it actually gets people thinking. It gets people thinking, and, and even though they're dystopic, uh, they get people mentally prepared for it. Right. And, and, and this is kind of interesting because then it starts to backfire on Frank's argument, because then, in a sense, people kind of get used to the idea that, you know, once these androids kind of look human and, you know, and all this stuff going on, that there is going to be some tricky stuff, some messy stuff. Uh, you know, there will be blood, you know, that, you know, that there are all these things. Right. People are kind of mentally prepared for it. You know, so it's kind of like an inoculation. Right. So so so, you know, in a sense, people aren't thinking that the AI stuff is going to be this kind of magic bullet that will solve all our problems, right? The people are already beginning to see that there could be problems, yet they're embracing it, yep. right? And, you Self-fulfilling know, prophecy can be a bitch, Steve. And that's the, well, uh, well, that's the well, issue. No, but, but, yeah, but, but, but I think this is, this is where I think, I, you know, I, I tend to be very, I, I tend to be quite uh, sort of optimistic about this because I do think that we do get quite a lot of dystopian, dystopic, kind of, um, you know, information about this stuff. It's not just Elon Musk saying, you know, how wonderful it'll be when we fly off to the moon or something, right? Uh, you know, it's a lot of this other stuff. And I think people are beginning to develop a kind of uh, intelligence about this, about making judgments on these matters. So I'm not too pessimistic, actually. I think, actually, the culture is catching up with this. And if anything, if anything, the culture might want to demand this stuff to happen faster, and Franco, I, I want to ask uh, the same question to you. I just wonder your thoughts on, on this idea before we move to closing statements. You know, Steve was so evocative with his examples. I, I forgot the question exactly. I'm sorry. Well, I'm really asking about how we engage in anticipatory social that's, research. That's, you know, that's, how, that's, how, how do I, we... How do we do this in a way in which it shapes technolo- technological advance and not merely just responds to it? 
See, I love the idea of anticipatory uh, governance. And, you know, there's a uh, the leader of the Social Science Research Council, Alondra Nelson, or she was the leader. Now she's the deputy at the Office of Science and Technology Policy. She's advanced this idea, I think, quite uh, well in terms of saying we can't just expect the social sciences and government to come in and clean up after the problems. We have to actually try to avoid problems. And, you know, an example of that would be, you know, uh, thinking back to the movies and also the, the w- there's a novel I, I particularly like uh, give an exegesis of in the in the in the book called uh, Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan, where you know it's it's a it's a wonderful novel and and I think it's part of why it's wonderful is that even though it has it is quite dystopian in what it imagines, what you're left with is an idea that boy, you really need a robust off switch for the robots in your life. Right. And so I don't want to like, I don't want to give up, give away anything about the plot or anything like that. But I I do think that like, there are ways in which if you imagine that, and imagine what does a robust off switch look like for drones um, in cybersecurity contexts, or there might be autonomous sort of programs running online that are trying to, to do wicked things or whatever it might be, um, that, that you need this sort of robust off switch. And I think that the off switch, and, and I think that anticipating that, and anticipating also how uh, that that sort of off switch might be programmed, might be developed, might be uh, the power over it might be distributed, um, those sorts of things. All of those come together, I think, in um, uh, good anticipatory governance. Um, and I think that the the ability of government agencies to do this is something we've got to cultivate. We've got to ask them, and this is something I saw recently as a member of a federal advisory committee for the Department of Health and Human Services. I mean. I, I hate to say it, but it just sort of felt so often that the folks in the department just were thinking about what's the next crisis of the next, you know, you know, six months, 12, 12 months, two years, when it's like, who's thinking about 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road or further? And to the extent we can get that type of thinking into the government, I think it'd be quite helpful. Yeah. So so in closing and, and starting with, with Steve, how do you think we can best ensure the effective, and the key word is effective, development of AI? Do you think we'll see AI promoting important human values or leveraging human values? Well, I mean, I go back to my opening statement. I think the difference will be, will be reduced, right? So there's a sense in which... Um, not only will AI, um, in a way, become more human-like in the sense of being able to do the kinds of things we normally expect human beings to do, but I actually think that this will have uh, impact on the way in which we make judgments of what what is appropriate, inappropriate human behavior even. And I know this kind of stuff scares Frank, uh, and, and, and maybe it should to a certain extent, I suppose. Um, but, but human beings have been shaped by their technologies in the past. This is not a new thing. I think it is true that this technology, because it isn't just the robots, in a sense, we're also talking about the infrastructure, right, uh, with all the data flows and all the rest of it through the, the way in which everything's become computerized, right, that does add a kind of special sort of dimension and a, and a potential real transformative uh, potential with regard to how humans think about themselves. Uh, And this is why I think the image of the cyborg will remain a relevant one. Uh, And I think, you know, at some point, politics and the law are going to have to come to grips with this, um, especially, and I think, again, this is something Frank won't like, but I do think people will be identifying with the androids. I do think that human values, human feelings, all of these kinds of things will be increasingly uh, attached to these 
machines, um, and these machines will improve in their own functionality as well. And I think this will raise some very serious issues of the kind that Frank was raising with regard to the labor markets and things like this that he was talking about earlier. Um, but I think that's just kind of the way the world is, and, and that's what progress looks like. It's always disruptive in this regard, and it's disruptive very often at a very deep level in terms of our human self-understanding. And Frank, how do you think we can best ensure the effective development of AI? You know, I think that there are uh, – I guess I would question the premise, and I think I would say that, like, I, I, I wonder effective for what? And so I think that trying to develop AI that is effective at um, uh, reinforcing and aiding human flourishing and stopping the sorts of arms races and wasteful and unproductive activities that so often diminish people's lives, that that's really the key. And that, that is the, the core of like a, a, a true a political economy of automation. And we didn't get too much into chapter seven of the book, but I mean, at some point I'd love to discuss, you know, toward a humane political economy of, of automation, because that I think is really the key. I think also with respect to Steve's point about sort of the potential inevitability of people's attachments to robots, I think that, uh, you know, there... You can say it in the abstract and certainly and, and, and imagine uh, different films, you know, like Spielberg's AI or others where people do become attached to uh, a, a, a robot or something like that. But I also think we've got to be realistic about, you know, how um, uh, troubling some of these attachments could be. So, for example, there was a story uh, about uh, elderly people in Lowell, Massachusetts that were being uh, exposed to a uh, robotic avatar of a cat online that was actually operated by operators who were elsewhere, but it could just as easily be an AI in a number of years. And uh, part of the reason why they were becoming attached to it is because they, the, 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 the implication of the story was that there was nobody else in their lives. And so I think that, you know, in thinking about, you know, are, is this, um, is that form of attachment something that really is indicative of human flourishing, or is it what you know, Lauren Berlant would call, say, a cruel optimism about uh, the nature of their uh, uh, attachment, about the nature of the, of the uh, relationship between the person and the, and the machine um, or the avatar or the AI, that, that we, we still have room to, to dig into that and that we don't immediately fall into the trap of false consciousness or other forms of, uh, you know, other, other I think, suspect uh, modes of uh, uh, analyzing people's uh, behavior when we do so. But overall, yeah, I mean, I think with respect to effective AI, we've got to we've got to make sure that we have the regulatory infrastructure in place overall. We have the right political economy. And and I think that we, we've got to also answer and, and really be able to debate openly, as we've done today, some of these more uh, metaphysical human values questions. Yeah. So much like a US presidential debate, there are no winners today. <laughs> Although perhaps the, the real winners are our future AI overlords. And on that note, I want to thank Professor Frank Pasquale and Professor Steve Fuller for their contributions to this important discussion. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Thank you, Steve. Great. Thank you to Frank and Steve for their important contributions to the AI debate. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.